Today, we're talking to Brad from AVI Systems about the creepiness of personalized AI. You're listening to Joel Beasley, Modern CTO. Hey, man. How are you? Good to see you. It's always good to see you. I don't know what it is, dude. Every time I see you, I just start smiling. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) It's the beard, maybe. Maybe it's the beard, maybe. What's going on? Are you expanding globally? Have you already been global? So we've, we've been doing business globally for a while, but during the pandemic, we uh, acquired into an organization called GPA, and GPA is our global brand. And that company, GPA, is co-owned between a number of companies. We're the largest shareholder. That got us into 65 markets, 50 countries, like overnight. And so our global business is nuts right now. On top of that, I sit on the board of Avixa. You probably don't know who Avixa is, but um, in the like electrical engineering space, you have IEEE that manages all the standards and the community and all that kind of stuff. In the collaboration AV media production space, that's Avixa. Avixa is the standards committee and the governing group. Avixa is the certification group. Avixa also produces one of the top five largest trade shows in the country called Infocom. And I'm on the board of directors of Avixa. And so that's a global organization. Spain is actually a trade show in Barcelona that's related to Avixa. That's why I'm going. I see your LinkedIn post. It's always like you on stage and some caption. I'm on, <laughs> I always give it a thumbs up and go, woo, Brad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. So you do a lot of the speaking at the trade shows. What are you talking about there? So I'm doing a half-day workshop in Barcelona on uh, AI and integration into smart workplace and what that's all about. There'll be a show coming up in Orlando in June. That's Infocom. That's the U.S. version of it. I'll be speaking there on a similar topic. Um, I'll be leading a CTO community, um, global community there. And then I'm also going to be, it looks like I'll be talking about... um, the emergence of esports, specifically collegiate esports, and what that looks like for uh, private colleges and universities, that kind of thing. That'll be a keynote that they've asked me to do. So there'll be those are the kind of stuff I'll be talking about there. Now I have a million questions. Oh, Tell it, me about. I want to talk about the AI stuff. What's the workshop? What's going on in the AI world? Oh, man. So here's here's an interesting thing. So post pandemic, everybody's trying to figure out what's the purpose of the office. I mean, is it is it kind of legacy? You don't really need it. Do you, do you need it for some purposes and not for others? What's that really looking like? We've been at the forefront of those discussions with architects, spatial planners, customers, large global enterprises for about two years now, trying to, trying to understand what it looks like. The nutshell for us, our best experience and our best knowledge today says that the office is not a place that you go do work, generally speaking. It is for some, but for most most people, that's not where I go do work. I can do focused work anywhere. I go there because I have an experience that I, I can't get over video. I go to the office because I need to rebuild a sense of workplace community, or I go to the office because I need time and proximity with others to create consensus 
define a big initiative, push that forward. Those are kind of the three big reasons why people are going back to the workplace. Back to the office, I should say, because the workplace now is everywhere, right? The notion, though, is that there's three kind of customer personas that are are new data consumers. So let me frame that up, and then I can get to AI. Is that all right real quick? Yeah. So here's the notion. So I have one data consumer around the workplace or the office that is the corporate real estate operations team. So imagine I've got a downtown, imagine I have a downtown office and maybe it's four floors. And imagine that about 60 to 70% of my workforce is in the office downtown at any given time. That means that I could probably shut down one of those floors, turn off the power, turn off the HVAC, turn off the network, all of that kind of stuff, reduce my carbon footprint, reduce my operating costs. The question is, can I predict who it's going to be and where they're going to work and kind of sequester these people into neighborhoods rather than letting them pick where they want to go work? And as a result, obtain those operational savings. That's kind of one thing. Second thing is I'm a corporate portfolio manager, corporate real estate portfolio manager. And I don't just have this in downtown Nashville. I have this in, you know, 50 markets worldwide. And is there a way that I can either reduce my overall corporate footprint, real estate footprint, or sublease it and turn that real estate holding into some sort of working capital, invest it somewhere else in the building? And so, Corporate real estate portfolio managers are trying to figure out, can I rationalize how much office space I really need? That's the second thing. The third thing is there's these workplace transformation leaders. Sometimes you hear titles like uh, workplace happiness or chief people officer or whatever it is. And they're trying to figure out how do I, how do I use the office as an effective workforce um, resource and by doing that, um, bring workers back to the office because we want them back at the office and enable us to consume that workplace in a different way. And the reality is, is that smarter people than me, people at JLL and other you know, property management firms, they've monetized this. They say that across the corporate footprint, my real estate costs are about $30 per square foot per month. My operating costs are about $300 per square foot per month. And the cost of, of enabling workers to consume and use that space for productive work is about $300 per square foot per month. And so they're all trying to figure out how do we do this in the post-pandemic era. This is where AI comes in. So we've been working on an initiative about 18 months. Um, we're in probably the, you know, moving from pilot to a production phase of it. And it's a handful of, of large global customers who are really interested in understanding and solving this problem. And AI brings us some really interesting tools. So let's say for an example, you live or work in Nashville and you're getting ready to go to the corporate office in San Diego. I don't know who would be doing something like that, but somebody like you, I'm sure, would. Somebody like me does. But I have no idea of what that what the resources in that office are. So my first idea is, how do I, I need to book a meeting space. How do I do that? 
And then the second thing is, I need to work someplace. How do I find a desk? And AI, we have some AI tools that enable me as a worker to now, without having knowledge of that space, I can understand what meeting spaces I need, where I can get a desk. Oh, by the way, Joel's going to be in the office on Monday. Do you want to fly in early and spend some time with Joel? Oh, and I can see that you're staying at a hotel, which means that you're driving from your hotel. Do you want us to reserve a parking space for you? And then when you enter the building, you use your phone as your badge to get through security and all of that kind of stuff. So it's this integrated approach around sensors and occupancy and access control and meeting spaces. And all of this AI begins to correlate this data together to give the operations team what they need. Maybe now they recognize that people are going to be in this space and not this space. I can turn power off. Gives the portfolio managers what they need to start rationalizing some decisions. And the workplace transformation leaders are excited about it because the worker now is excited about going to the office because it's an experience now for them, not just a place to do email or do work. How long till we get to the point where the the AI will tell you that one of your members on your sales team, if they were to go to this location at this time when these people are going to be there, the likelihood of them closing a deal would be X. Yeah, so the, today you can rationalize there's data around things like experience centers or customer visits into offices that have a direct correlation uh, and metric to close ratio and size of deal and all of that kind of stuff. I don't know that we can that we can today have a, a meaningful metric that says if you're working in the office, this is the amount of business that you close. And if you're not working in the office, this is the amount of business that you close. We haven't quite gotten there yet, but I imagine it's probably 18 months away before we can start having some predictable models like that. My understanding of what you do changes almost every time I talk to you. So did this opportunity come up because of the buy-in to the larger global organization and people with, within that community were talking about these problems and, and you had the capabilities and the resource to help solve them? Or how did this come about? So we have a pretty distinct kind of innovation model that we follow. I say that because it's partially what you just described. And it's partially customers that are asking us to solve the problem. And so that customer might be a uh, large, think of a large global brand, like a Mercedes or a 3M or a whoever, right, which are customers of ours. One, one part of that organization sees us as a media production company. The other part of the organization, more the IT stack, they see us as a UC company and a UC service provider and a and somebody who provides collaboration resources, which might be conference rooms, it might be cloud services, it might be voice services, it's all of that kind of stuff. And it was actually that customer who began to engage us. They came back and said, you know, you guys have provided to us, UAVI, you provided us, you know, thousands of conference rooms across the planet. Do you have any idea how people are going to consume the office post-pandemic? That's how it started. We began to really formulate some forward-thinking opinions, and most of those opinions turn out to be true, and that's kind of given us a bit of a head start. But they engaged us because they wanted to have a conversation around, are people going to return to work? Are conference rooms still needed? And if they are, what do we need to do to help workers feel comfortable, safe, and then 
excited about going to the workplace. That's how that started. Now, here's the other part. So we have customers in the U.S. that are engaging us with that. That's swirling around on this side. And then there's there's me that's an innovation leader within globally within GPA, which is our, like I said, our global brand. And I'm talking with other CTOs and technology leaders globally. And this topic comes up as part of the conversations. And they go, hey, you know what? Have you have you heard of the Cube in Berlin? Well, yeah, isn't that that super cool next generation building, blah, blah, blah? Yeah. Well, we did this thing with them. And this thing was around uh, worker consumption and, and AI technologies that help people understand how to use the technology in the space. Oh, that's interesting. How did that go? And so they brought with them some innovation and experiences that I would not have had domestically here in the U.S. And our business unit in Australia, we had some experience with some software that, that they had been consuming. And between all of that, that kind of that began to create this global approach to how you make the office much more accessible to the worker who doesn't work in that office regularly. And that's changed the way that you host like customers. Because if you're not familiar with the space, you're not very confident in your conversations. But when you're familiar with the space, now you're hosting that customer in your home. And it changes the dynamics of those conversations. And that's kind of where we've been headed. That's smart. So if you can build tools that allow unfamiliar spaces to feel familiar. Yeah. Things like, you know, Brad, AI says, you like sushi. There's a sushi place down the street from here that we would recommend. That helps me feel more comfortable and excited about going to the workspace. But now I know that I can take my customers joining me down the street or whatever, right? So it's it's a little different because it's it's not focused specifically on the tech that you're delivering to the customer. It's completely focused on the human consumption of it. So what is it looking at my expense reports to see I ate at a sushi place or it is it tied into my Neuralink? Can it it might, right? <laughs> it's tied in yeah. it's tied into your expense report. It's tied into m- probably more than that. It's tied into like your Outlook calendar and it's starting to correlate things like um you know, what what did you schedule in your calendar and then with IoT sensors, you you know, you reserved a desk, and you can, you can now sense that people are working at that desk. And so, not only did you reserve it, but we see that you're there, and we also use use the app as your badge to get in, so we can, you know, predict that the person at the desk is actually you. And then you go into the meeting room data, and it's Outlook plus occupancy plus. You know, whatever your cloud service is, and you're now starting to correlate all of that data together. And it says, yeah, you know, Brad actually was in that meeting and use the technology this way or that way. And that, that rationalizes for those different consumers of data. It begins to rationalize how they're thinking about workplace happiness or how much corporate office I need. That is really cool. Yeah, it's That's a lot the, of fun, man. It's actually yeah, very to to me as a nerd, it's super interesting how it's you know how AI is driving these decisions. There's a and we're learning a lot of things. Like there's a there's a very very real creepy meter on AI, mm-hmm. right? And you you don't actually know when you're tipping the meter over to the I'm really uncomfortable phase. You just 
know from human behavior, people don't generally say, hey, I don't like that. They just avoid it or stop using it. And so you have to kind of start looking at those trends. And then you might sit down with a focus group who says, nah, it's just, it's creepy when they know that it's me. Oh, okay. We'll dial that back then, right? Yeah. The sushi thing kind of creeped me out. Did it? Do you ever struggle? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, so when I say creep me out, I mean it in the way that I'm curious as how they got the data. It's like, how did you, sure. like, I don't ever remember explicitly giving you my dietary right. preferences. Had I done that, I would be like, yeah, okay, that's awesome. It, it knows I like, if it asked me, hey, you know, what's your favorite places to eat or something like that? Or if it said, hey, we noticed from, you know, your c- corporate credit card that you tend to go to like chicken restaurants, you know, is this something that you enjoy? Do you want us to like look for these in the future? And I could, you know, be more involved in this curation of data versus it being magical. Yeah, right. So, so the, I guess the, if you're going to dial back the creepy meter on that, it might nudge you. Right. So it's not it's not recommending, it's nudging, which is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit more passive. And it might nudge you on, you know, do you want to make lunch plans? Outlook says, this might be a little too aggressive. Outlook says that you eat at places like this, let me recommend. That might be too aggressive, or it might nudge you. No, I don't think it's that aggressive when we know where it's coming from. That's interesting. Like, right, so I, I'm, I'm. This is just me, yeah. subjective. I've done no studies on this. I don't mind predictive AI, and I don't mind it extracting insights and trying to improve my life. But if it does it without telling me how it came up with the information, now that bothers me because I feel like if I know where it came from, I have the ability to turn it off. And so if I feel like, I don't want them to know that, I know where to go turn it off at. But if I don't know where it came from, I'm like, you shouldn't have that information. I don't know where it came from and I don't want you to have it. And I get real defensive real fast. Okay, so so the disclosure of the source is Mm -hmm. meaningful to you. And I can can totally understand that. It, It might be that the nudge is more gentle in the beginning and that nudge is... Do you uh, do you want to make a reservation for lunch in the app? And it yeah. puts sushi in the top because it's seen something in the past, but it's not exclusively sushi. And then from your past, from now at that point, the app is kind of keeping track of where you like to eat and makes recommendations based on that. But I don't know. No, you don't have to do it at all. You can. The, the idea is that you could turn it off. Yeah, no, I love it. I personally, I think it's brilliant to use your company lunch location data. You know, it would be really great if and I'm now I'm being product role. It'd be really great if <laughs> if the the thing comes up and it's like, you know, lunch plans, okay, yeah. and this has got a list and then there's this little asterisk saying, you know, list ordered based off of outlook preference yeah. restaurant some find some way to word that and then a little button where I could like click settings and turn it off if I don't want it to be accessing that data. That's beautiful user experience, but if it like sends me a text message like I think you might be hungry, <laughs> there's a CC restaurant. My name is Hal. <laughs> right. You know, like, like Uber <laughs> Eats does at noon, right? When you have an order, do they do that? Yeah. Oh wow, yeah. they do that. Yeah, oh. Uber Eats will pop up on my phone, and it, and it might be that like uh, I might be having a conversation with somebody like you know, hey, you want to get some Vietnamese? Do you like Vietnamese? Hey, I got a great Vietnamese place, and then. You know, 20 minutes later, Uber Eats is, boom, are you hungry? Try yeah. both of Vietnamese. You've ordered there before. I'm like, ah, oh, okay. I know. I don't know, but Zuckerberg told us, you know, under congressional you testimony can- that it doesn't work that way. So, oh, but it does. I mean, it it 100% does. You can go in and turn it off. You can go turn it. How can he say it doesn't work that way when you can go turn it off? (laughs) 
Just saying, man. Yeah. Well, I don't know. There might have been a delay from like when they were more open. His, I don't know the date of his testimony on like where we're at today, but there's definitely the ability to revoke the advertising right. voice things inside of the Facebook ecosystem. But by default, it's on. They try to put it on by default. Yeah. And isn't it interesting? I think the consumption of AI starts with things that, to your point, starts with things that are um, understandable, right? You kind of opt in. And that might be things like, uh, you know, meeting room reservation and that kind of stuff, which is, you know, there's nothing threatening about that. There's nothing creepy about that. But the next step, what we learned, and by the way, we've learned that you that every organization socially has that creepy meter as well as the individuals within it, right? So one of the things that we've learned is that you turn these things on or off based upon, you know, very specific cultural attributes that you're trying to help develop. And so, so one might be the system now knows that I'm going to that location and it knows that I'm reserved a conference room and a desk. And it's told me that friends that I work with are going to be there. So it kind of put us all in a neighborhood together and all of that kind of stuff. That's not creepy. I think that that's kind of helpful. The next thing might be, you know, Brad, you're, you haven't had a security update on your laptop because you work from home for 90 days. So I've scheduled you to stop by the Genius Bar or whatever, this, you know, the IT support desk at this time. Would you like to do that except yes or no? And, and those, I think, are, are helpful, but they're all AI-driven. Those are more helpful. Don't seem particularly creepy, but some of the others are can be, I suppose. And I, I think it matters. So you nailed it from the beginning. It's, it's hard. The creepy meter is hard because I remember calling a pizza place like, seven years ago. And they, they said, you know, hey, you, you ordered this last time. Do you want to order that again? And like right off the bat, like that's how they answered the phone. Like, hey, so-and-so, you know, you ordered this last time. Would you like to order that again? And I was just like, yeah, that's exactly why I called. And I I didn't think it was like that creepy in my head. I was like, okay, well, they they probably just have an order system that's connected to my phone number. And so my brain could figure it out. And I was like, that's what I believe it would be. I could see how, though, across different generations that that could really have some, some vastly different reactions. Generationally, for sure. And geographically. So mm-hmm. let me give you an example. The idea of of the software recommending a parking spot for you in San Diego would seem kind of odd because parking is generally pretty plentiful. But if my office is downtown Chicago and it recommended, would, you know, would you like me to reserve a parking spot for you? And this is where it would be because this is the door you're going to enter or this is where your your office is. That would be like super helpful because you can drive around for an hour in Chicago downtown and never get a parking spot. So I think there's geographical differences that are interesting. And you're absolutely right. Generationally, there's uh, very, very distinct opinions on expectations of how secure my personal data is. So that's very different generationally. I think the platform matters too. Like I've noticed myself. I like that this conversation went to creepy AI because I haven't gotten to talk about this, but I noticed myself actively not wanting to give Google more data. Right. So I'm not re- I'm not necessarily retracting my data and, and things like that, but they've had my Gmail for 20 years right. or wh- however long it's been, and they've there's a lot of 
tools that we use that are related to it. And and sometimes I just feel like you're involved too much in my life. That's why I use the Alexa and I don't use the Google um, Home. Right. I also got to interview the the employee number one at Alexa, Dave Fitzbitsky, and he told me that the most important thing for him when he was building, uh, designing the first Alexa was that when you um, hit the mute button, that's a hardware mute. Uh-huh. So it actually shuts power off to the chip or whatever, however they technically do it. But he goes, that's a that's a hardware mute. There is no way for the platform to get audio with when you hit that mute button. And I got to interview him several times and kind of become friends with him. So I I trust him. I believe him. Sure. He seems to be like a very ethical type person. You know, it's kind of weird how that shaped my decision because it made so much sense for me to get the Google Home thing or whatever because, you know, I'm I'm already integrated into the ecosystem, but I'm just right. making these decisions. Like, I don't want you to have that, you know. I'm getting old. Am I becoming an old man? <laughs> well, do you, do you mind? I'm trying to think. I think you have like a, an iPhone, but do, uh-huh. do, you, do you mind when Siri knows that you're driving someplace and it pops up on its own and says you should leave now if you're going to get there in time or here's the best route for you to get there. You haven't asked. Siri just offers it to you. Does that is that creepy? No. So when I'm creating my event, it well, I don't know if I have it off. I know that there's some feature I have when I'm creating the event that I could say remind me like when it's right. time to leave. Right. The thing I use Siri for is I say call my wife. So I have my wife in my phone as my wife. Sure. And um so I use it for that, and then I use it to set. I set alarms for like ten times a day, like set an alarm for thirty-five minutes or something. Um, and that is pretty much the extent. I don't use Apple Maps. I use Google Maps. Yeah. Um, I think they're superior as far as actually getting me to the destination. Although the integration with my vehicle, the Apple Maps is superior. It's, yeah, amazing. it's amazing. I'm just isn't like, it? yeah, mm-hmm. it's so cool. Yeah. So for me, the interest as as a CTO on AI in smart workplace fits into two categories. There's the engineering part of it and the kind of architecture and systematic part. And then there's the human adoption, human consumption, how do people respond to it part. And one of the things I find really interesting about this is that what for me started as an engagement with this workplace transformation team or workplace happiness leaders, that's how we first got involved But now there's other consumers of data that I would not have thought would be consumers of the data that we're creating. And that's part of the interest to me. And then there's another part, which is kind of down the road a bit, which is the amount of data that's being generated. And uh, uh, I was working with Applied Materials recently on some stuff, and, and their leadership said... I want to say it was in that t- 2023, more data will be created by AI and ML than by humans. Think about that for a minute. Yeah. So if that's true, imagine the amount of data that is being driven through software and machine learning. How do you organize that, manage that, store it, decide what you're going to do with it or not? And all of that is a byproduct of AI. Yeah, I had a, a conversation yesterday, so it hasn't aired yet, with the CTO of Dun & Bradstreet. Oh, yeah. And and I asked him, I was like, hey, what are some of the big things that you're focused on and, and challenges that you have? And he said, like, expansion of data. He goes, you know, how, how do you move five exabytes around every night? 
right. you know, around the globe right. successfully, yeah. you know, through, through 40,000 APIs. And I'm like, whoa, I was like, that does sound like a, like quite the challenge. And, uh, yeah. So that's what people are thinking about at that level anyways. Yeah. I mean, I'm, for us, we've recognized that data has gravity and that means it's, it might be portable. You might technically be able to port it from one place to the other, but the, just the weight of it, moving it from one to the other, means it's very unlikely it's going to get moved. And, and if you don't think about that when you're starting the you know data architecture discussions, uh, you find yourself in a place where you you got really valuable data and you can't figure out how to move it to the next level. The other thing is is that that we're learning right now because data has gravity. As the data cycles and begins to churn and gets more and more refined, it attracts other applications to it and other data to it. And if you don't, if you're not thoughtful about how you're going to manage that and and integrate that together, it becomes unwieldy really, really fast. Because to your point, you know you're you're moving big data, and to the, the point I was making earlier. It's not big data because people are keying it in or creating it. It's big data because your ML applications, your AI applications, they're creating it on their own. And without oh, yeah. understanding how you're going to architect it and manage it, it's, it gets pretty unwieldy pretty fast. Yeah, uh, Elon Musk is talking about that. He, he says like organic data or like human right. data uh, versus silicon, basically. He's saying that this the machines are coming, right? They're they're vastly outnumbering us as far as how many of those you have creating data versus us creating data. Right. And I think that that is interesting. I also want to know, you just gave me this thought, we might need to talk to like a physicist or something or some sort of scientist because hmm. I'm curious as far as the weight of data that's being pushed around the planet. Like, do electrons have weight? I mean, I'm assuming they have some sort of weight. And if you're actually transferring <laughs> this data, you know, you. Like how much weight? How much? How much? How much do the electrons weigh of five exabytes that are getting pushed around the planet? Because then you just brought up this gravity thing, and I was like, I initially was like, gravity. He, I guess he means like metaphorically, or like you know this like visual in your head. You imagine it has gravity because you know it pulls things to it. And then I was like, wait, it probably actually it right. could have gravity, right? You know, it could have weight. And right. I'm curious to know about that. You're not a physicist or anything. No, right? I'm not a physicist. <laughs> But but you know what I, I'm uh, I'm going to be talking. So Sandia National Labs has been a long long time customer and partner of ours, and uh, one of the programs that we're tied to is their advanced compute um, initiatives. I'm going to bring this up in my next conversation with them, and if if there's interest and thought about it, I'll I'll point that back to you too because I think that that's a fascinating. I was not thinking of it from a physical perspective. I was speaking to it metaphorically, but you're right. I'm not sure. Somebody's creating the resources to store that data, and that has mass to it. Yeah, that's a clear one, you know, the mass of the drive yeah. or whatnot. But then yeah. your your point is, even if it's being, you know, the transport is light waves, it's fiber optic or it's, you know, photons, phonetic, that has mass associated with it. Is can you Could you theoretically calculate the mass and I'm sure you can. Yeah. Do you get to play in your free time with like the Dolly or the open AI or any of these sort of consumer facing news headline making tools? You know, I really, I really don't. I haven't. 
my personal time has been, as it relates to tech, has been more focused on where where technology and people meet. That's been kind of the the fascination for me and where I spend most of my time thinking about it. But people on my staff are, and they're clearly thinking about it from that perspective and be interesting to have that conversation. There's two things I want to draw your attention yeah. to. So I don't spend a lot of time there. And whenever I get this stuff, I'm always trying to focus on what's the thing that it's, that is at least like somewhat here today, right? Like it's kind of like the very first earliest version of it's here, not the thing that's just theoretical, right? I like right. to focus on things that are like closer than that. And there are two things that have caught my attention this year. Uh, the first one is what the chat GPT is doing specifically with the Microsoft and GitHub code assistant project <laughs> where it's like, have you seen this? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I haven't seen yeah. it. I don't have firsthand knowledge of it, but it's oh my part goodness. of the conversations that we're having. Yeah, if you just go to the website, uh, <laughs> they have a video on the homepage. It basically can like auto-complete your code or you can talk, talk to it and say, hey, I want you to write a class that can do A, B, and C, and it'll just spit the code out. And it's like 90% right. And right. for me, I was like blown away because the amount of code it's generating, it makes you realize really quick that programming for the detailed lower level part, it can become automated, at least assistive automated, like human in the loop automated, like really, really quick to help people write code much, much faster. Um, so that's been fascinating. And the second thing is we're an audio production, podcast production company, right? And we have these like 14, 15 shows other than ours. And now I think we have like five full-time audio engineers. And I had this idea the other night as I was falling asleep. I was like, you know what? With all this advancement I've been seeing, especially with chat and GPT coming out and, and all of these these things I've kind of been just like gleaning from guests. I was like, I wonder if it's at the point yet where I could take the voice, like everyone's trying when they're editing audio, everyone's trying to take the signal and then improve that signal, remove the background noise. Like they're trying to do something with that core right. signal. And at the same time, the transcriptions are like perfect. Like they're virtually perfect now. They they weren't five years ago when we started the podcast, but now they're virtually perfect, and they can separate speakers and everything. And then I found that there's this this voice print AI where you can speak into it for like forty sentences, and then you can type, and then it'll say what you in your voice what you want to say. So I said, oh, okay, wow. well, how good are those? Yeah. So then I was like, well, why are we trying to correct this audio, this dialogue audio, when we could just make a voice print because we have an hour of them talking, have it transcribed, and then have the voice print read the transcription like with the training data of them actually saying it, and then we'll have like a new source. Well, it turns out, I don't know if that's how they're doing it, but there's like three companies that have it, and it's out today, and we dropped a file in it like of our worst. I called Josh, and I said, hey, Josh, give us our worst audio that we've ever had recording and they gave me a couple samples. I dropped it in there within 10 seconds. It was as high of quality, if not higher than what we had that's done. Crazy. Yeah. And they're like, is my job automated? I was like, that's only like 20% of your job. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 it's not. It's not. We're good. We're, it's not taking your job. It's like 20% of what we do, but it's kind of interesting though, right? Yeah, it really is. And and you can you can see the value of it in terms of you know production quality, but also in terms of language translation and understandability and all of that other kind of stuff. It really has uh, the potential of solving some real human problems. As you're describing it, a friend of mine who 
uh, who's been a leader in our industry, a great innovator, super smart guy, passed away last year um, from ALS, and it attacked his voice early on. And so we'd be having meetings together, conversations together, and he'd be typing, and it would be reading it out because he couldn't he couldn't make his voice work the way that he wanted it to. And so that was the way he was communicating. Something like this would be a really interesting improvement to that process, right? Yeah, and then it also brings up the whole deep fake conversation, right? Like, at what point can I be sick and Josh can be pretending to be me because we're on a video <laughs> call? <laughs> I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of hours of me talking and like me being filmed, like... I think they use a lot less than that when they do those sort of model actors. Right. Have you seen them for the learning yeah. tools they have yeah. on? Yeah. So, man, the, the future is going to be really interesting on how they solve that, like the authenticity issue of is this actually a president or a world leader or is this a deep fake? That's going to be interesting too. Yeah, the ethics behind it is is going to be an interesting challenge. And it's it's not unlike a lot of the conversations that I have today around the metaverse where there's some really powerful tools, it's <laughs> really big opportunity to go bad too. I was having a conversation with somebody recently and they asked me, so how do you decide what technology you're going to spend time on and what you're not? My response to them was, if it's a cool gadget, I'll, I'll observe it. But if it changes the human condition about a problem that's close to me, that's when I'll get into it. I see a human problem. I see how this new innovation can solve that human problem. That's what moves it up the stack and something I'm going to really spend some time with. So it, I, I, think, I think whether it improves the human condition or not is going to be the outcome of what really sticks and what really gets energy behind it or not. I like that. That's a good a good uh, test for yeah. for where you spend your time. For 2023, we're gearing up, right? Where are you going in 23? How are you deciding? Let's give let's give some advice to the technology leaders right <laughs> okay. now that are getting ready for this new year. How how do you prepare for the new year? So for me, the, I think it starts with uh, cause and purpose first. And if I've got a good handle on on the bigger purpose, then I'm uh, that translates purpose for me translates into some sort of destination. There's a place that I want to end up, right? And if I've got a good picture of that, then I'm going to organize kind of the big things in my life around helping me arrive where I feel like or believe I'm supposed to be in life. That includes work and everything else. I think for me in 23 as it relates to work, if I'm kind of reading the landscape properly, I think there's an opportunity for me to not only lead other technology leaders, but maybe build a community around CIOs, CTOs, and help develop that community as well. I'm finding myself being drawn into relationships with other CTOs, CIOs that are like-minded, and um, I've watched you build that community, which is awesome and amazing in and of itself. Uh, I'm not talking about it from that perspective. I'm talking about it from a mi much more of a microcosm of just a handful of, of uh, leaders. So I imagine that I'll be 
my voice will be added to leveling up a community of CTOs, CIOs that are near me. That's going to be probably one outcome that'll happen this year, I would guess. We're going to be driving the part of our business around collaboration, and that part has been on fire since the pandemic. I mean, like as fast as you can run. That's going to continue to grow, but I think it's going to get the attention around it's probably going to get eclipsed by creating experiences, workplace experiences, and it's probably going to get eclipsed by uh, some form of, I don't even have a good language around it yet, but it's really around corporate broadcast, corporate messaging. It's, it's this notion, I heard, I heard a CMO friend say this the other day. He said, you know, Andy Warhol was famous for saying everybody gets their 15 minutes of fame. Um, his comment was, not everybody's going to be famous, but everybody's going to be a content creator. And I think that the executive level of global corporations are waking up to that. And I want to help us figure out a way to do that well, rather than just create stuff. Now, do you create stuff in an agency sense? Like, will people come to you and say, hey, we need this type of like ad campaign or video? How do you, what's the context in which you create multimedia? Yeah, so we won't generally, I mean, we do create, do some creative, but it's pretty rudimentary. You know, we'll, we'll partner with content creation firms that are really focused on that and do that well. So that's, that's not our space. Our space is not what's being said, but creating the environment of how it's being said and who it's being said to. So <clears throat> there's a level of interconnectivity in that. Um, so it's it's pretty common. I'll give you a uh, kind of a classic example. It's pretty common that executives that are customers of ours are using the technology that we've created for them. And they're going live from their house or from their office or something straight on CNBC or Fox Business or Bloomberg or whoever. And in the past, that was a studio that you, they would have to drive to to make that happen. And today it's not. Today it's just wherever they happen to be at, kind of like what I'm doing today. This is my office, but it's for the, this hour, it's a studio that I'm broadcasting from. Right. Yeah, I had to walk 25 yards, man. Well, yeah, so. you, you, got a, <laughs> you got a rough life at the ranch where you podcast know, right? from. This is good. I think we should wrap up the podcast okay. and we can talk a little bit about some personal stuff. Yeah. And let's just end with what is the best piece of leadership advice that you've ever received? Oh, dude. I'll share you with at least one of them, right? So... I remember early in my business career, um, a friend of mine, a mentor of mine was CEO of um, a company in the Pacific Northwest called Fred Meyer. And Fred Meyer was a retailer and two thirds of all, two thirds of the population in Portland, Oregon was in a Fred Meyer twice a month. That's how impactful they were in the industry. he decided he would he would uh, have lunch with me one day at my request. And I was trying to rationalize how business worked as a young man because it seemed so cutthroat to me and that in order for me to win, somebody else had to lose. It was it was more of a competitive thing. And he he was probably the first to input into me that the idea of good business 
is an expanding economy for everybody involved. And it's all around how can I help expand this thing that we're all doing together. And that obviously has stayed with me since then. His, his name was Dale Warman, and he was a great, great mentor and friend to me. Can I tell you one, one other one real quick while I'm thinking about mm-hmm. mentors that gave me some good advice? Uh, another mentor of mine, Janelle and I were leave, living in Burbank at the time, so I must have been, I don't know, 28, something like that. <laughs> Glenn Taylor was his name. Glenn was a mentor, and he was one of those guys that, so somebody who was 28, a business, young businessman, he had more money than God, and I just couldn't figure out how he got there and how it just kind of all seemed to work. And he, we were living in Burbank at the time, and, and you couldn't go anywhere in L.A. and not where he was not known. He was just one of those kind of guys, right? And uh, he said to me one day, uh, he said, Brad, how do you handle your money? And so I tried to explain it to him. And then he said, well, uh, do you tithe? And so I tried to explain it to him. And uh, he goes, you know, I don't think you're getting the point that I'm making. Like, all right, well, make it clear to me. He says... My wife and I, Vera was his wife, my wife and I live on 10% and give away 90. You're struggling to get yourself into a place where you live on 90 and give away 10. He said, that's not your goal. Live on 90, give away 10. Your goal is to live on 10 and give away 90. And man, that changed everything for me. That was a huge, huge moment in my life. Live on 10, give away 90. And that's true in every business transaction or relationship I I'm, I live with. Boom, nailed it. That's <laughs> mic drop moment. I can't, I can't add anything better than that. <laughs> Super good. Dude, we made a podcast. There you How go. do you feel? It's always good doing it with you, man. I love it. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.